Good morning. Welcome to springtime. Do you have your taxes done? We still have three days, right? All kinds of time. All kinds of time. Hey, wanted to let you know next Sunday, Deb and I are going to be gone. Our daughter, Gabrielle, is getting married in Joplin, Missouri. And uh, we're going to be there and be a part of that. And uh, we're excited about that. So, yeah. Uh, think of us. We'll be we'll be traveling out on Thursday. And then uh, I'm, uh, the plan is to bring my dad back to live with us. He's 86. And so uh, that's going to that's going to be a neat transition and a neat time for us to be a part of that as well. Um, we start a new series today, a new series called Next Living the Mission of God, Living the Mission of God, Living the Mission of God. Is uh, it means pursuing God's plan, not ours. You'll hear that over the next four weeks. Um, uh, this series is really kind of an extension of the bold series, which is why we're still bold up there. Yeah, I, I, I love the bold. And um, and it really is kind of a connection of everything that's happened in the first nine chapter of, of nine chapters of the book of Acts. Over the next four weeks, we're going to look at some events that happen in the next, uh, whatever it is, 18 chapters of the book of Acts, just kind of an overview, not really going to jump into Paul's missionary journeys very much, um, but we want to look at, a, at, a, at several things that happen beginning today in, um, in Acts chapter 10. So um, if you've got your Bibles today, we're going to spend a lot of time in Acts 10 and 11. Feel free to get those out if you've got a, a, a smartphone or whatever and have an app on there. Uh, go there and, and we'll be there in uh, just a second. Um, the, the, the title of today's message is Shattered Understandings. I don't usually talk a lot about titles, but, but I chose this title for this message very specifically because at its heart, it has to deal with this thought that, that when we think we understand who God is and what he's about, that lots of times that concept just kind of gets blown up. It, it gets um, shattered. It gets destroyed because God is so much bigger than we are. Let me kind of set the stage before we jump into Acts 10. It takes place, the, the bulk of the story takes place in a city called Caesarea. Um, if you were in Israel right now, if you were to go, it's called Caesarea Maritime because it's Caesarea that is on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. Um, there's also a, a, a city called Caesarea Philippi that, w- that was built around the same time, so that's why it's called Caesarea Maritime. Caesarea Maritime was built by Herod the Great, um, who was this incredible, uh, th- this incredible guy with an incredible vision for building cities and impressing Rome. Um, he built this city really kind of from scratch. Uh, it was completed about 10 years before Jesus was born, and it ultimately became the capital city really politically, um, uh, economically, because it was a port city. It, uh, it became really the heart of Judea, um, not uh, in a different kind of way than Jerusalem was. Jerusalem was for the Jews, but Caesarea was for the for the Roman government because that was the place that they could get into and get out of. Caesarea is a really, really cool place. I was there in 2011 when I went to Israel, and, um, and there are a number of things that really stick out to me about Caesarea. Um, go ahead and go to that slide, Jason. Um, the first is that it was, it was built by Herod the Great, and, um, and, and they didn't have enough water for the city. At, the, at this time, there's a, is it up to, oh, you know what? I was looking back there and it's not there. And I'm thinking, oh, where's my slide? Uh, sorry, 
Here we go. Um, In the top left-hand corner is an aqueduct that was built by Herod the Great. There wasn't enough, there wasn't enough uh, good drinking water in the city, a city of 125,000 as it, as it grew, um, and they had to have water. So they built an aqueduct 10 miles long into the mountains to some springs that were there. And so the water, by gravity, would pour out of the springs and travel 10 miles to the city of Caesarea. Incredible engineering feat if you think about what was available um, 2,000 years ago, you know, we think, oh, they didn't know very much. They knew a lot, okay? Um, so they built this aqueduct. Uh, uh, you can go and stand on the shore of the Mediterranean and see that aqueduct. It's a really cool thing. In the lower left-hand corner is a, is a uh, feature that's there, ruins that are there in Caesarea Maritime right now. It's called the Hippodrome. And it is, uh, it's a place where games took place in the city of Caesarea. Did anybody grow up on Ben-Hur and the chariot races, you know, for me, that I, I can remember as a kid, can't wait, and I, I couldn't wait for the spring to see Ben-Hur on TV because there were those chariot races. The Hippodrome in the lower left-hand corner is a place that they had chariot races. Um, horses could go eight across, four chariots, four, four uh, chariots with two horses, um, and they do a 180-degree turn in a really tight fashion. It was incredible to be there to see the stands and to think, oh, man, This is one of those places where it really happened. And to stand on that dirt and to recognize that not only was it used for chariot races, it was a place where the gladiators fought and where Christians were killed. In 70 AD, uh, the Jews revolted against Rome. Rome killed about uh, 2,500 Jews um, in the streets of Caesarea. And then another 2,500 they brought into the Hippodrome And they were executed by the gladiators in games. Real place. You could still see it. Cool cool thing. In the um, lower right-hand corner is a theater that's there. And that theater was built by Herod the Great 2,000 years ago, built out of stone. And it still exists and is still used for large events. When I was there in 2011... Um, they had a show the next night, and so they had brought in all of the lights, all of the electric, all of the sound and everything, and they were going to have a, a concert there with thousands of people in this theater that Herod the Great built 2,000 years ago. Incredible thing. In the top right-hand corner um, is, is a stone that was found um, in Caesarea that's, that's really, really important. In the early half, in the first half of the 20th century, the early 1900s, there was a, a movement that, that really encompassed all of uh, Western culture that said, you know what, we can't really trust Scripture. Scripture's just a bunch of good stories. There's no historical basis for anything that we found, find in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament. Um, and one of the reasons that they thought that was because of the, the character Pontius Pilate that is a part of Jesus' crucifixion that's mentioned so clearly, there was no historical evidence, so no historical record for anyone ever named Pontius Pilate. So skeptics said, we can't trust Scripture. Surely somebody as important as Pontius Pilate, as the way Scripture describes him, somebody else would have mentioned, another historian or whatever. For 2,000 years, there's no record of Pontius Pilate. In 1961, in an excavation, they found this stone that would have sat on that would have been set on the palace there in Caesarea Maritime that says Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, 
And that archaeological find, don't, don't miss this. It was as significant as the Dead Sea Scrolls in a different kind of way. Because this character that's mentioned nowhere else in history except the New Testament, all of a sudden there's archaeological evidence, hard evidence, that he not only existed, but that he was in the place at that time. That's kind of the setting of Caesarea. Caesarea was a place that, uh, that uh, a, man, um, a man named Cornelius lived. Cornelius was a soldier. He was actually in charge of a hundred soldiers. He's, he's described as a centurion. That meant that he was in charge of a hundred soldiers. He was a part of what's called the Italian cohort, which was a group of six or eight hundred soldiers. Um, so he was one of several leaders in that area that had come from Rome to Caesarea to protect the governor, to protect the, um, the ruler that existed there. And to just help you visually, I need a couple of volunteers. Jason, um, you'll be my volunteer. All right, come up here. Over here is Caesarea, all right? And Jason, this is Jason Hiddle. Everybody say, hey, Jason. Hi, Jason. All right. Hi, you, uh, you're, you are Cornelius for us, all right? That's good. That's really good. Uh, Cornelius, again, this incredible leader that's there. Okay, 100 guys. Scripture describes him in, in glowing terms. It says that he was a devout man. He was righteous. He loved God. He, he gave alms to the poor. And it says, actually, in the original language, it says that he gave um, to help the Jewish people, even though he was a Gentile. It's important to capture and to understand that the Jews had this covenant with God through Abraham, right? And for the Jews, they were clear that God would only work within the Jewish nation. Gentiles, who cared about them? God didn't care about them. He had turned his back on them. He had chosen the Jews. But Cornelius was this guy who feared God. And something incredible happens. If you've got your Bibles, turn to um, Acts chapter 10. You can just hang there, Cornelius, okay? Uh, At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the Jewish people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? So say that, Jason. What is it, Lord? There you go. And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Do you have a picture? Centurion Cornelius commander of lots of guys who's devout, who's holy, who's righteous. He's even so devout, even though he's not Jewish, he prays to God at the Jewish times. The Jews had set periods of time each day that they would pray. They would pray third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour, twelfth hour. The, the beginning started at 6 a.m. So this is at three in the afternoon. Okay, the ninth hour is at three in the afternoon. So he's praying just like all the good Jews, even though he's not a Jew. He gives generously. The Jews recognize, we'll find it in verse 22. You can look ahead and and see down there. Um, The Jews respected him. They thought the world of him. This is a guy who is a good leader. And we're glad to have him in Caesarea taking care of us. 
Now we flash forward, we go from Caesarea over here to Joppa. And in Joppa, there's, this, there's a guy who has a house named Simon the Tanner. Um, he's a guy who tan hides, who, who does that process of, of taking the, 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 um, the skins of animals, tans them so that they can be used for all kinds of things, right? Simon the Tanner's here, and Simon Peter, the apostle, is staying at his house. He's probably like kind of on a retreat. It's a, a, a house by the sea. So he can look out and, uh, and be right there on the coast, see the Mediterranean, experience all of that. And about the sixth hour, 12 o'clock noon, he goes up to pray. He's hungry, right? But he goes up to pray and he falls in this trance. Now, it's important because the, the scripture tells us that he's up on the roof. We think peaked roof. How would he be up there? That doesn't make a lot of sense. It's a flat roof a flat roof and kind of a, a, like a deck up on top. You could go up there and feel the breeze from the, from the sea come in. Great place to be, great place to pray, great place to listen. And Peter has this vision. Uh, uh, the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, no way, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, don't call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Understand that Peter, even though he's a follower of Jesus, even though he has seen the risen Savior, he's still a Jew. And, he, and his, his interaction with God is still in the context of the Jewish law, even though Jesus has come and, and provided the sacrifice for sin. So Peter's still praying at the times that the Jews uh, prayed. They're probably still meeting in the temple, all those kinds of things. And, and Peter is obeying the Jewish law, which the Mosaic law said you, there are certain kinds of foods that you can't eat and certain kinds you can't eat. Certain animals you can eat, certain animals you can't. And, and so in this vision, the sheet comes down from heaven and it's got like snakes and crocodiles and all that kind of stuff. It's got crazy birds in it, things that they weren't allowed to eat. And this voice says... Get up, kill, and eat these things. And Peter says, God, I'd never do that. That's against the law. And the voice says, you know, what, what I've called clean, don't call common or unclean. Peter's trying to, trying to sort through that as he comes out of the trance. Now, we bring together, you know what, I need a Peter. Rick, come up here. Just so I've got Peter on stage along with Cornelius. Give it up for Rick. Yeah, there you go. It's important to know from Caesarea to Joppa, where Peter is, is 30 miles. How fast can you walk? 15 minutes a mile, that's four miles an hour. How, fa- how long can you walk that? <laughs> no, not right now with Jen pregnant. Um, for... Um, for uh, most people, somebody third, first service said, you know what, I can walk three miles an hour. That's pretty good. That's pretty good pace, three miles an hour. How long can you walk that? Well, uh, a little bit, but 
If you're walking three miles an hour, it's, that's a 10-hour journey, right? If you're walking two miles an hour, which is probably a more normal pace for most people, you're talking about 15 hours, somewhere between 10 and 15 hours. Cornelius has his dream at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And at noon the next day in Joppa, Peter's having his vision, and these guys appear at the door. 21 hours later, they've traveled 30 miles. Um, I say that to say to just point out Cornelius, Cornelius' awareness of God's command and his obedience to that. Sent some guys and go bring, go bring Peter to Caesarea. It was immediate, and it involved a lot of work. Those guys probably walked late into the night, slept a few hours, and walked the rest of the way because they get to Peter. They get to Simon the Tanner's house. Peter's up on the roof. They, they come to the door and say, is this the, are you Simon the Tanner? Is this um, the house where, where Peter is staying? And they say, yeah. Peter, at the meantime, is prompted by the Holy Spirit again and says, hey, there are guys down at the door that are waiting for you, and uh, you need to go down and talk to them and listen to what they say. Uh, verse 17, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, The men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason that you that you've come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God fearing man, who's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. Pause for just a second. Peter is a committed follower of Jesus, right? He's a good Jewish man. And the guys who've come from Caesarea, Cornelius' two servants and the soldier, that he trusts, they're all Gentiles. It's a big deal that we miss that Peter, who's staying at Simon the Tanner's house, Simon the Tanner also has to be Jewish because Peter would never stay there if he wasn't Jewish. Peter says, come on in, stay a while. Because he's processing this dream that he's had from God, this vision that says, um, take and eat this stuff that's been unclean, it's now clean. So they come and stay and spend the day, sleep overnight, they're fed, and they start the next day to head back um, to Caesarea to see Cornelius. Only Peter brings with him six guys to come along because he has some sense that something incredible is up. Thank you, Rick. You can go sit down, Jason. You too. Give it up for them. The next day, verse 23. Peter rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Cornelius is a centurion. He's the leader of a hundred soldiers. Even at his worst, he's going to be dressed fancy. It's probable that he was probably in his dress uniform with the plume and the whole deal. And when Peter comes, he's expecting him. It's been four days, but he's waiting for them. He's got his house filled with his relatives and his close friends. And when Peter comes to his house, 
Cornelius falls down on his face. The word that's there is the word that, that's used in Scripture for worship. Proskuneo. It means to fall face down before someone who's worthy. That's what Cornelius does. And, and Peter says, ah, don't do that. Um, uh, Peter says, verse 26, stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. He said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I shouldn't call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why did you send for me? And Cornelius said four days ago, about this very hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon that's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. Do you sense, well, you know, we just kind of read the story, the anticipation that had to be present in that house. Peter's not sure why he's there. His six companions are there, and they're not sure why they're there. Cornelius is there, not exactly sure what Peter's going to say, and he's got all of his family and friends there as well. They get to that point and say, okay, Peter, tell us what you're supposed to tell us. And Peter begins to tell the story of Jesus. You'll find in this message that he, uh, that he preaches, that he shares, it, it parallels what he preached on the day of Pentecost. It parallels the bold message of Stephen before the religious leaders. It tells the story of Jesus in short so that they get, they grasp what's going on. Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what's right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, Jesus is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did in both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. That last sentence is so important because Cornelius, though not a Jew, understands the Jewish law. He understands that the prophets had told that a Messiah would come. Peter lays out the case. Basically, he just says, you guys, even though you're not Jews, you know what's happened. Cornelius, you're a military leader. You know of all the stuff that's happened in the last 10 years or so. You know what's gone on. You know the disturbances. You know the story of Jesus being crucified outside of Jerusalem. You know that he was killed, that he was put in the grave. And that God raised him from the dead. 
And, and the seven of us who are here, we're part of the people that saw Jesus after the resurrection, that interacted with him, that touched him, that ate and drank with him. And as Peter's telling that story, something incredible happens. The Holy Spirit comes down and in a supernatural way that they can see, fills Cornelius, his family, and his friends that are there in the house. The Holy Spirit comes in and fills Gentiles. Again, it's so hard for us to grasp, to understand how significant that was and how um, it was a pivotal moment in time. God had, had interacted with the Jewish nation exclusively to that point. God had, had made a covenant with the Jewish nation through Abraham. And in this instant, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes down and supernaturally fills these people who are not Jewish. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. What happens is the Holy Spirit comes down and just like on the day of Pentecost, Just like in Acts 2, Cornelius and his family start to speak another language. uh, We don't know what language it was, but it was something that Peter and his companions understood. It may have been Hebrew. Um, It may have been some other language that they didn't know because it says that they recognized that they were praising God through this tongue that they didn't know. It took them back to the day of Pentecost, to the Holy Spirit coming down. And Peter says, good night, God has done something incredible that we've never even thought about. We've never even considered. God has come down and saved these folks. Why shouldn't they be baptized too? And then he commands them to be baptized, and they are probably by those six guys there because of the the way the wording says. Um, What happens after that is that Peter has to be in this incredible sense of right in the center of the palm of God's hand, right? God has done something supernatural that has changed history, and Peter's right there in the middle. But when he goes back to Jerusalem, there's the other 11 apostles saying, Peter, what were you thinking? There's these other followers of Jesus that are there in Jerusalem and in that area that are saying, God can't do anything in the Gentiles. What are you, what were you doing down there? And Peter then begins to tell the story. Now the apostles and brothers who were, who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, the Jews criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men, to Gentiles and ate with them. That's against the law. You're not allowed to do it. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying. I have this vision. These guys come. um, The the thing comes down and says, everything that's been unclean is now clean. Just as the vision ended, verse 11, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were. they, they They were sent from Caesarea. Spirit told me to go to make no distinction. These six guys who were with me went with me. We entered the guy's house. He told us about his vision. 
I began to preach and the Holy Spirit came down. As I began to speak, verse 15, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how Jesus said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. What an incredible story. Let me, let me just share some things that I think um, are relevant for us. They give us context to this particular passage of Scripture. The first is this. Don't, don't be so certain this morning that you know exactly how God works. Let me say that again. Don't be so certain that you know exactly how God works. You can be sure of who he is. You can be sure of what his character is from Scripture. But be careful to be certain that you know exactly how he's working. Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He'll direct your paths. They understood, they thought they understood how God would work, that God would only interact with the Jews, that God would only save the Jews. But God's plan was so much bigger. When when you're sure that you have God figured out, he will typically show you that you don't have a clue about who he is and what he's doing, right? I, I remember my dad saying to me when I was a kid, you know, whenever you try and put God in a box, whenever you try and put God in a box, one thing is certain to happen. God will blow both ends off the box and then explode the walls around it too. Because we can't contain who God is and what he's doing in our lives. Peter was certain that God's plan was only for the Jews. That was the promise, right, to Abraham and his descendants, which were the Jews. What Peter missed was that God had said to Abraham, All nations of the earth will be blessed through your seed. This promise that I have with you, it's going to impact the entire world. The Jews had missed that. They thought they understood, but they were off. The challenge for us today is to to give some teeth to that. What is it that we think that we understand about who God is and how he works you know, there's, there's all kinds of things theologically that we land in a spot and we say, okay, I've got it figured out. I've got it figured out that God is premillennial in terms of eschatology. Some of you are going, huh? Um, postmillennial or amillennial. I've got it all figured out. I understand exactly when Jesus is going to come back and what that's going to look like. Some of us land in a place and we say, you know what, it's clear to me. It's clear to me. Calvin was right on. You know, I've got reformed theology. And other people say, well, wait a second. No, I've got it all figured out. It's all about free will. We all have that option, that choice to respond to God. Anybody lived there before And, and lived in the separation that comes because of theological boundaries? Uh, It's not just theology, though. It 
it gets lived out in all kinds of ways in our life. We've got people that say, you know what, I've read the scripture. I understand what God has called us to do as, as his followers. Therefore, everyone should homeschool just like me. You know, homeschooling is what it's all about. That's, if you're, if you're a serious follower of Jesus, you should teach your kids at home to train their hearts, Deuteronomy 6. And others say, you know, I read scripture and I have this clear sense that God has called us to be salt and light in the world. God doesn't want us to separate from the world. He wants our kids to be salt and light in the world. In public school, that's the right way to go. And others say, no, no, it's Christian school, right? Based on our convictions, we think everybody else is wrong. And we determine, we set the boundaries to say this is how God is going to work in our lives. There's all kinds of real practical things where, where, where we create barriers artificially because we think that that's how God's going to work, and God will blow that up. Um, I grew up in a, in, a, in a Christian home with great Christian parents. Um, I grew up in a framework that um, I don't know that it was ever really taught this particularly, but there was a clear sense that Christians didn't drink alcohol, that that was sin that you just didn't ever do that my grandfather was an alcoholic and i can remember when i was uh 16 17 years old we went out um for dinner Um, my grandfather was with us he was pretty wasted before we ever got in the restaurant we sat down my grandpa was loud and uh, obnoxious and i can remember being seated in that restaurant and seeing the two waiters that had that room flip a coin to see who was going to wait on our table and the loser got our table out of that experience, I thought, man, I am never, I'm never going to drink. I don't ever want to be associated with that. I don't ever want to be a part of that. It wasn't really necessarily a spiritual conviction, but there was this sense, I just don't want to mess with alcohol and all of the mess associated with that. Whenever we put God in a box, it tends to blow out both ends, right? I've, I've got a friend here in Lansing that I play racquetball with. You know what his job is? He's a, he's a guy that I'm, uh, my prayer is that I can love him to Jesus. You know what his job is? He's a wine distributor. You know what he brought me this week? A bottle of wine. Now, what do I do with that? One option, one option. Some of you are saying, give it to me, give it to me. Um, uh, uh, one option is to say to him, I don't drink. I, you know, I think it's wrong. I don't want it. And our relationship, he, our relationship would probably survive that, but it would really be an affront to him as a friend. He's given me a gift as a friend. I could take it home and give it away, right? I could do that. But he's going to say, well, what would you think of that? So you know what I did? <laughs> I had a glass of wine. Um <laughs> But you know what? That's a, that's a struggle for me because I've created this framework that says this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And it's not a framework that came from God. It was a framework that came from an incident that happened a whole bunch of years ago with my grandfather in a restaurant. It's easy for us to be legalistic about all kinds of things, about, about theological things, about things of personal conviction, 
about things that don't even really have anything to do with God at all, to create this artificial system for how to have a relationship with God. Here's the thing, though. God doesn't want the system. God wants the relationship, right? He doesn't want the system. He doesn't want the rules. He wants our hearts. He wants us to pursue him. Living the mission of God means pursuing God's plan, not ours. Doing things that we wouldn't do on our own. Doing things that take us out of our comfort zone and out of our own understanding. Let me say that again. Living the mission of God means pursuing God's plan, not ours. Doing things we wouldn't do on our own. Doing things that take us out of our comfort zone and out of our, understand, uh, out of our own understanding. Let me, let me just unpack that with, in four quick ways. Um, it's important to recognize that God's plan hasn't changed. God's plan from the beginning of time, God's plan from the Garden of Eden, God's plan to redeem all of mankind has never changed. God's promise with Abraham didn't change things. God wants to have a relationship with us. Before the beginning of time, God's desire was to know us, to love us, to have us in his presence eternally. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Second thing is this, God's grace is available to everyone. No one, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me, no one is too far gone from God. No one has been forgotten by him. Cornelius, completely outside of the Jewish faith, an angel come and says, you know what? I know right where you've been. I know your heart. I know your desire. And we're, we're going to make a way to make that right. No one is, is too far from God. God's grace is available to everyone. Third thing, obey God even if it's different than you've ever understood and it takes you out of your comfort zone. That's a, that's a hard thing, right? Even if it's different than you've ever understood and takes you out of your comfort zone. We're wired for legalism, right? We're wired to create that system. That's a, that's a natural part of who we are because we, we want to be able to live within that system and kind of earn our way to God. That's not what God designed. God wants us. He wants our heart. He doesn't want the system. Last thing is this. Be sure and tell, be sure and tell the story of how God brought you to your new understanding. It would have been easy for Peter to stay in Caesarea. It would have been easy for Peter to avoid the other apostles. It would have been easy for Peter to just blast ahead with the Gentiles and not paid attention to the Jews anymore. But instead he goes to Jerusalem and he tells his story. He says, you know, this is the way that God worked. It was an incredible thing. And the, and the apostles and the leaders in the church affirm that story. They say, man, Peter, you made absolutely the right call. And their understanding grew. And from this point on, the gospel begins to go out to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. What's your your action step today? Um, If God's calling you to do something crazy, something that's way out of your comfort zone, my encouragement today is to follow him and obey what Cornelius did. Cornelius didn't know, had never met Peter. So when he sends his, his guys 
to go get him? He's obeying God in a way that just didn't make any sense at all. Send these guys 30, 30 miles away to, and ask him to come back? Who's going to listen to that? If God's calling you to do something crazy, obey. It may be to reach out to somebody who's very different than you with Jesus' love. Maybe, maybe a person from another culture or another race. Maybe a Muslim or a Latino or an Asian or a hillbilly or a homeless person or a person with disabilities. If God's prompting you to reach out with love to those people, obey him. Maybe it's to sit down and talk with a person that you really question their religious views and to just simply come alongside them. Maybe if you're from from a pretty conservative background, maybe you need to reach out to somebody that's coming from a Pentecostal background. Maybe you need to reach out on on the other end, maybe somebody from a Mennonite background, and to reach out and build a relationship recognizing that we're serving Jesus together and to drop the walls that, that force God into a box. Maybe it's to buy a cup of coffee or to sit down and have lunch with that person at, that work, at, at work that's so different than you, that you wouldn't normally have anything to do with. Maybe, maybe it's a, a guy who's a biker. Maybe it's a, a, a gay guy or a lesbian woman or a person who goes clubbing at night. Who is it that God is calling you to reach out to? Because recognize that when Peter went to go see Cornelius in Caesarea, it, it taxed every bit of his understanding of what God would call him to do. It broke every law in the book that was in his head and in his heart from the time he'd been a kid. God called him to go reach out. And if God's calling you, go meet them on their turf. And tell the story of God and see what he does. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that your word um, tells, of, tells us of events like this one. God, it's pivotal to us who are Gentiles, who who weren't right in the center of that promise to Abraham, at least in the way that it was understood. It's pivotal in history, but God, it teaches us so much about our need to depend on you, to listen to you, to follow you and obey. God, our desire is that we would obey you no matter what, even when it's uncomfortable even when, it's, when, when it takes us outside of our comfort zone. God, we want to obey. We want to be led by you. Lord, we, we want to be a, a church that honors you. We want to be people that honor you. God, we don't want to be legalists. We want to live on mission with you, Lord, even when that means something that we don't expect. Help us to do that, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.